loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshipped God. With the trumpet call of the seventh angel, the seventh plague does not start immediately, or if you will, this third woe, but a certain action in heaven precedes as a psychological preparation for the faithful in the face of the appearance of the Antichrist, who is the culmination of evil. And in this world, we'll have the battle between the Antichrist and Christ the Messiah. Unlike the silence that followed in heaven after the opening of the seventh seal, if you recall, now with the trumpet call of the seventh angel, great voices are heard in heaven. These great voices are voices of celestial beings. These are the triumphant sounds of the heavenly beings for the expected victory. And what are the voices saying? That the kingdom of our God and our Christ was upheld in the world, and now he will reign forever and ever. It is, this, it is the victorious pre-announcement of heaven of the victory against the God-opposing powers. This victory of God and Christ, if you noticed, it uses both persons interchangeably of God and of Christ, and the book of the Revelation does this to always show the messianic work of Christ, the second person of the Holy Trinity, who took on human nature and became men. This victory of God and of the Christ of God, his Christ, is beautifully brought out by the second psalm, a prophetic psalm which is readily accepted by even the synagogue of the Jews to be messianic. It is worth reading the greater part of this psalm and expanding on some points. For those of you who read the Psalter, this psalm is very well known. I told you this is the second psalm, but in reality, this is the first because the first psalm is considered as the introduction to the entire book of Psalms. And for this reason, the second psalm is considered the first because with this psalm, the very body of the book of the Psalms opens up. I will provide for you a brief translation and please try to follow me so you can see how this psalm brings out the entire meaning of the book of the Revelation. Why did the nations rage and they sat and discussed and programmed vain or worthless things? All the kings and the leaders of the nations gathered in a common council only to turn against God and against his Christ. They discussed during their council Let's break off our bonds with God and his Christ, and let's throw off our back the yoke of God and his Christ. In other words, widespread apostasy. He who dwells, he who lives in the heavens, will laugh at them, and the Lord shall hold them in derision. 
he will laugh at their expense. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and in his anger. He will distress them. But I, I who? I, the Messiah, the Christ, was established king by him upon his holy mount Zion, announcing the command of the Lord, announcing that this is the first presence of Christ. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. The Lord told me, God told me, he spoke to me, to the incarnated son. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. You are my son. It's like saying to him, you are God. God speaks to God. As per Psalm 109, which the Lord used as an argument to show, to prove himself as the Messiah. Explain to me, he asks the Pharisees and the scribes, what does David mean when he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool under your feet. What does the Lord said to my Lord? Well, David is speaking. David is saying, the Lord said to my Lord. The one person Lord is speaking to the other person Lord. The Pharisees had nothing to respond to this, absolutely nothing. Please note that this psalm was considered messianic, and to this day, this psalm is still considered messianic by the Jews. But we said the Jews are in a state of blindness. You are my son shows the divinity of the Messiah. Today I have begotten you shows the humanity of the Messiah. In other words, he told me that I am the God-man. Ask from me as the God-man and not as God, because as God you are of one mind with me, but ask as the God-man and I will give you the nations as your inheritance, the nations which will have believed and will have become your flock. But all those who will not have believed, you will have the authority, you will be given the right to punish them. Because as the Lord himself said, all judgment the Father gave to the Son, and the entire earth will be under your possession, the earth, the ends of the earth will be under your jurisdiction. In other words, the entire creation. You will govern them with an iron scepter, with absolute obedience and authority. Whoever does not wish to be obedient under your rule, then you can crush them as easily as someone crushes a clay pot with a metal rod. In other words, you'll be their leader and their shepherd of all those who love you, and you will punish those who do not love you. This psalm, my friends, the second psalm, comes to express the entire content of all the things the book of the Revelation comes to tell us in this section that I just read you previously. And the 24 elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, once again, my friends, we see our familiar heavenly image where the 24 presbyters can be seen on either side of the throne of God. And there, they are also sitting in 24 thrones. The number 24, if you remember, is simply the number 12 times 2, which means a multitude of saints 
or according to the interpretation of Michael Acominatis, they are the 12 patriarchs of the Old Testament and the 12 apostles of the New Testament. These 24 presbyters, after the trumpet call of the seventh angel, fall and worship the one sitting upon the throne while crying out a thanksgiving prayer or doxology. We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come, because you have taken your great power and reigned. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come, and the time of the dead that they should be judged, and that you should reward your servants, the prophets, and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. The nations were angry. Did you see how this prayers, these prayers echo the second psalm? And you should destroy those who destroy the earth. This is an outstanding prayer with much content, rich in depth, as we will see. The prayer begins with thanksgiving. We give thanks to the one who is coming, to who you who exist, you who existed, you who are coming inside history because you have taken your great power and reigned. This is thanksgiving due to Christ who fulfills his promise about the end of history, which is nothing else but the resurrection of the dead, the judgment, and the hell of the impious and the justification of the pious. When the Lord was leaving his 12 disciples here on earth, and in the aftermath he ascended towards heaven, he told them, I will come back again to take you with me. And he also said, I will be with you always until the end of the age, until the end of time. The end of the age is the end of history. But the apostles would not be kept alive until then. Here he means the faithful who would believe to the preaching of the apostles, which is the church. I am with you always. So, lo, I'm with you always until the end of the age. I am with you is a promise, and I will come to take you along, because in the house of my Father there are many rooms. You see here, the kingdom of God is likened to a house, to a mansion, with many rooms. He uses the term house, and since this is a house, it has many rooms, and I will come to bring you with me so we can be together forever. So there along with me, you will be seeing my glory and you will be sharing in my blessedness. These are words that Christ promised about the end of history. And now, my friends, he's glorified by the 24 presbyters being people who existed upon the earth because the time came for the promise of Christ to be fulfilled about all these things. But let's concentrate on some key points of this 11th chapter and verse 18. And the nations were angry, and your wrath has come in the time of the dead, that they should be judged, and that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. This verse contains, very briefly, the entire work of the universal judgment, the entire work in extreme brevity. 
the nations become angry, turning against Christ and against his church, and consequently this leads to the culmination of apostasy. Now, where are all those enthusiasts who like to support that as history proceeds forward, we're heading towards better times and not the worst is over? They always expect a certain improvement. My friends, these occasional improvements are simply that occasional and local and temporary work of the Holy Spirit in the church. We are not moving towards greater times. Simply put, there are no better days ahead. Unfortunately, we're heading towards something worse, and the days are becoming worse and worse. This fact is extremely well-founded and repeated a thousand times, repeated in the entire Holy Scriptures. This is a straight fact, and this straight line exists from the Old Testament all the way to the New Testament. St. Paul, for example, says to Timothy, keep in mind that there will be difficult times in the last days. There will be perilous times. Very difficult days lie ahead. People will be so and so and of such and such character. And because of this, now Christ comes to fill the cup of his wrath against the rebellious since the time of repentance has been exhausted. After this, we have the time or the season of the dead or according to St. Andrew of Caesarea, the time of the dead expressing the time of the resurrection of the dead. And after the resurrection, the final judgment follows, during which the rewards and the punishments will be given. St. Andrew says again, during which each one will be given accordingly, based on the works of his hands. So you will receive according to the action of your hands the payment or the compensation, and you will receive according to what you have done. Were you a worker of good, you will be rewarded for these good works. Were you a worker of evil, you will be paid back with this evil. But here, my friends, there is a certain differentiation in the area of the reward according to the text that I just read to you. There are three categories. This differentiation agrees totally with the parable of the Lord uh, in the parable of the sower. I will repeat again the line from the previously read verse of the book of the Revelation. And that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great, and this small and great, as we will see, happens to be a subdivision of the last category. And these are not two additional categories beyond the three. So essentially, we have three different categories. The prophets, the saints, and those that fear the Lord. We see this tripartite division of the people to be saved in the content of the parable of the sower. I will read for you from the 13th chapter of the Evangelist Matthew, verses 8 to 8 and 23. The Lord himself is interpreting his own parable for the sake of the disciples who were ignorant of its meaning. But others fell on good ground and yielded a crop, some 100-fold, some 60, and some 30. And he interprets this very point to his disciples. The seed fell on good earth, 
And this seed rooted and sprouted and yielded 100 kernels of wheat. The one seed brought forth a plant which, uh, with 100 kernels of wheat. Another branch measured 60 kernels, and another seed fell and brought forth uh, a branch with 30 seeds. What does this mean? Here we have three categories of fruitfulness in the earth of virtue. All people do not produce the same. They all have piety, but they don't have the same yield. In the first category of the 100 are the prophets and the apostles, as St. Andrew and St. Arethas interprets for us. In the second category of the 60 are the saints, all the saints who surround us and we honor them, St. George, St. Demetrius, St. Karalambos, St. Paraskevi, St. Seraphim, and so on, all the saints. So these are in the category of the saints, whether martyrs or confessors, whatever they happen to be, even though the element of martyrdom is indispensable and ever-present in the area of general holiness. In the third category of the 30, we have those who fear the name of the Lord. Please watch this point. All those who fear, the ones who do not reach the height of a saint, but nevertheless, they become fruitful. They bear fruit. This is the pious man, the good man, who fears the name of God. He does his prayer. He lives and participates in the mysteries of the church. He partakes of the holy mysteries. He goes to church. He does not wish to do anything evil. He stays away from wrongdoing. He struggles. Certainly he's imperfect. Of course he has imperfections. Now, if you see him and you mention to him, you've reached the level of a saint, let's say from the known choir of our saints, he will tell you, who, me? Never. He doesn't see it, even though we may see something. So he's not at the level of the 60, but he's at the level of the 30. In other words, he's of those who fear the Lord. I don't know, my friends, what God will show forth inside the course of history uh, from us. Saints, martyrs, great, small, I don't know. We can say, however, that when we hear the Word of God and we apply it, let's understand this well. When we apply it and when we have a sense of nobility and sincerity and a desire to be well-pleasing towards our Lord, as St. Paul says, the Greek word is philotimumeni, to have this love for honor. And then when we have this nobility and sincerity to offer our yield to the Lord, then we belong in this category, those who fear the name of the Lord. And obviously, we are in the area of salvation. Listen to this. This is a very joyous point, at least to me a joyful testimony. I consider this a very joyful point indeed because at a certain time, and this could take much discussion and much analysis, however, I will mention it in just a few words. This has to do with Simeon the New Theologian. When I read, if you don't see God and if you don't see Christ from this life, from this present life, 
don't expect to see him in the other life either. This is very discouraging. This may discourage some people, even though here we have a certain relativity regarding this vision of God. This vision of the Son of God, of the God-man, it is not always a vision spoken by Simeon, the new theologian, of course. He had this experience of the vision of the person of Christ, but we can also have different levels of this vision. This rising staircase of spiritual vision has as its goal, as far as this present life goes, the vision of the person of Christ with whom St. Simeon holds a dialogue. He holds a dialogue. He speaks person to person with Christ. The entire surrounding becomes light, full of light, and Christ says to Simeon, who's also enveloped with the uncreated light of divinity, the divine glory, and Jesus says, Simeon, it is I. I am the one who was crucified and died for you. And Saint Simeon is devastated when Christ leaves. He's totally devastated. Undoubtedly, this is a certain step of theophany, a very high step. Those who happen to be on a lower level, will they perish? Well, there, if we read the writings of Saint Simeon, we will lose hope and we will say, what about us? In other words, are we beyond the possibilities of salvation? then why am I even trying? It's a lost cause. Not so, my friends. First of all, it is certainly not impossible for someone to reach some high steps. However, we need to be climbing some steps. These steps have the analogous vision of the person of God. For instance, when you assume a steadfast position, a certain confession for the person of Christ, that he is the God-man, this is not a small thing. This is one form of a vision. What does St. Paul say? He says the following, No one can say Jesus Lord without being in the Holy Spirit, without the Holy Spirit. What is going to save us? The Holy Spirit. If we don't have the Holy Spirit, we don't enter the kingdom of God. According to St. Seraphim of Seraph, the oil in the lamps of the parable of the ten virgins is the Holy Spirit. The oil represents the good works, and the light is the Holy Spirit. So without the Holy Spirit, you don't enter the kingdom of God. It is not possible. Now then, how can one know that he may have the Holy Spirit? How can I know this? We have many ways, many signs. We also have very overt testimonies, personal testimonies and experiences. But the first testimony the first step, so to speak, the first step that I need to place my foot on in order to begin to say that I can have the Holy Spirit is this. The Holy Scriptures tells us that no one can call Jesus Lord without having possession of the Holy Spirit. So you cannot confess and say that Jesus is Lord. He is God, but only if you have the Holy Spirit. Therefore, do you agree and fully accept, my brother? You confess that Jesus is the God-man. Then you need to know that you have the Holy Spirit. And all those who cannot say this, the world outside, all people who don't say they cannot accept that Jesus is God, they do not have the Holy Spirit. They are totally empty. They have no part of the Holy Spirit at all. And someone who's totally empty, 
of the Holy Spirit cannot possibly be saved. This is tragic. This, however, makes up the first step because I told you the presence of the Holy Spirit starts from this testimony and reaches the level expressed by the Lord and rivers of living water will flow from inside his belly, from his inside where he will feel the jumps of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will be jumping inside of the person uh, who's totally living a life of the Holy Spirit, the level of enthusiasm felt by the disciples when they became vessels full of the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom, zeal, enthusiasm, and other gifts or graces of the Holy Spirit, which is, we could say, a fullness of the presence of the Holy Spirit. Well, all these make up the staircase, the progressive steps of the Holy Spirit. So based on all this, we could say that those who fear the Lord are those who begin to love God or Christ, to fear Him and believe in Him. I believe that in this mindset, someone can breathe and say, yes, I can be saved. Please listen to me carefully. The worst possible sermon given by someone would certainly be this. Do not struggle. You will not be saved. Only the great ones will be saved. This is a demonic sermon. No, we can all be saved. One will produce 100, another will yield 60, and another 30. Here the Word of God presents us with a variation within this last category, those yielding 30, the small and the great. What is this small and great? Here I will read to you what Anthemus of Jerusalem writes who likewise takes from St. Andrew and Arethas because the one copies off the other one, so all three of them maintain the same train of thought. And afterward, afterwards, I will analyze this for you. Small, he calls those who did not reach the perfection of virtue, those who are still afraid of the wrath of God and the punishment after death. While great, he calls those who have reached a perfection of virtue, all those who still fear God and they don't want to fall from his love. What do we see here? The apostles and the saints who yield 160 reached perfect love which expels or puts out fear. What does St. John the Evangelist say? Perfect love casts out fear. But something more in this. Of course, many saints were saying, I'm not afraid of God. St. Anthony was saying, I'm no longer, I no longer fear God, but I love him. But let's be careful here. There are some of our Christians with a very impure heart who are quick to say that, that they don't fear God, but they love him. They need to exercise some self-criticism because they're under a most pitiful delusion. Again, we are deluded when we are so quick to say uh, that we don't fear God, especially if we have not gone through ascesis and through purification of the heart. For someone to say, I don't fear God because love puts out fear, this only means that we don't even have basic knowledge of what God means. We have no idea what holiness is all about. May God protect us and let us be careful. However, for, the la for this last category, those who find themselves at the 30 category, 
the fear of punishment is at hand, as St. Anthemus of Jerusalem tells us. In other words, am I going to be saved? Will I be saved? Will God punish me? How can I stand in the presence of God? Will I be saved? This is the question that a person keeps inside him. Will I be saved? And he fears God's punishment. And he talks about the perfecting fear for the great ones. So these are the small and the great ones. What is this perfecting fear for the great ones? It is the fear of losing what I have. Not so God will not punish me, but more importantly, not to fall from the love of God. And I hold very strenuously that which I have. In other words, there's a certain imperfection in both circumstances. But I repeat one more time, this is encouraging my friends, and we must struggle. We must struggle. I remember at some point I needed to take final exams necessary for my degree at a certain academy. But at the time, I was also a soldier, and we didn't have much time to study. So myself and some other associates went to the administrator to extend this testing period until September. We're going to be tested on the same subject matter that he gave to everyone else, but we simply needed more time to prepare for our tests. The professor said, simply bring a certificate from your army base to confirm this, and there's no problem. My other soldier friends placed the res responsibility on me, and when we managed to bring the certificate to the professor, he tells us, why don't you just take the exams? But sir, we don't have time to study. This was during 1949. We had uh, very unstable conditions politically. Times were difficult. I was serving uh, at the time. Reading was not easy with constant maneuvers and various services. Who had time to study? The professor was insisting, don't be afraid. Just go ahead and take the exams. I told the others, the professor feels that we should just take the exams. And I decided to go for it. One other person took the exams along with me. Two others held back. There were four of us. My friends, we tried our best. We did the best we could, and we passed. The others were never able to get their degree. They postponed, and the opportunity was over. I brought this up as an example. So if someone tells you, you can be saved, try your best. And when you find yourself discouraged, thinking, how am I going to manage this? I lived during a time where you can't, you, you want to become a saint, but people will not let you. If someone wants to, he can. We need to give it our best, my friends. So do the best you can, and then we will succeed. Yes, I'm telling you, this is the encouraging sermon of salvation. Lord, are many people going to be saved? They ask the Lord at some point. I'm going to support this so you don't think that this is my thinking. Lord, are those who will be saved many? And the Lord answer, keep struggling to enter. Don't ask if there will be many or few. Just keep fighting to enter. To enter where? In the life, in the kingdom of God. So each person will receive according to the actions of his hands. He will receive the payment. The pious will receive the kingdom of God. Let's enter the kingdom of God, and we will be happy even with the last seat, so to speak. Even though it will be jealous in the sense of the others there, and this jealousy is much different than 
the sinful type of jealousy that we have here in this world. It is something altogether different. I have told you this before, but I will bring it up again. I'll bring up a small example. We will all be seeing the face of God in the kingdom of God, but each one will be seeing it differently. Try to visualize a theater, an ancient Greek theater, let's say, like the ones we have around this area, like the, uh, the theater of Epidoros or uh, Herod of Atticus of Athens and so many other theaters. They are structured like an upside-down cone and they are actors performing on a stage which is located at the very bottom of the theater. The spectators are sitting on the bleachers all around the theater. Everyone can see the performers equally well. No one's vision is blocked by the head of the person in front of him because the other bleacher is much lower. And each one has full view of the actors. But one of the spectators is illiterate, another is a graduate of the elementary education, another finished junior high school, another completed his university education, and another completed his studies in philology, literature, specializing in theater, and more specifically in ancient theater. Now tell me, they all see the actors, but how does each one understand and enjoy the play? according to his education, according to his knowledge. Along the same lines, our knowledge of the person of Christ will be analogous to the virtue that we have exercised. And theologically speaking, this uh, knowledge is the vision of the person of Christ, and this will go on for ages and ages, forever, without ending. And this knowledge is certainly not the knowledge gained in our schools or when we read a book. This is the carrier of blessedness, and it is perceived in different levels according to the worth of each person. So although everyone sees the person of Christ, the blessedness varies. And you should destroy those who destroy the earth, something that we haven't addressed yet. And from this we see that we have those people who corrupt and destroy the earth. The actual verb used in the Greek is distort, and he will destroy those who distorted the law and nature, the law of God, the distortion of nature uh, and the distortion of God's commandments. Our times are full of this double distortion. Our times distort nature, and it, it also distorts the law of God. This phrase, he will destroy those who destroyed, reminds us what Paul writes to the first epistle, the first, in the first epistle to the Corinthians in the third chapter, verse 17. If someone destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. And this is the church, not the building, but the church as the body of Christ, and beyond this we have the human body as well, which is a member, a small piece of the body of Christ, which is the church. In the sixth chapter he speaks about the body, this body, the one you see in me and the one I see in you, where he says, don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, 
the one who destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. Again, the Greek verbs, the verb is thero, or corrupt, which suggests that anyone who distorts his body makes it totally improper as a dwelling of God, and God will have nothing to do with this person, or he will discard him. St. Peter speaks specifically on this point in his second epistle, 2.12, and he says the following, But these, like natural brute beasts, uh, animals having a natural birth only, and not a supernatural rebirth, as we say, the natural men, uncultivated, the crude, beastly, animalistic men, the men of instincts, the one who only cares about what to eat, how to satisfy his aphrodisiac desires, and how to fill his belly. So these uh, Christians here, because he's talking about Christians, they're like natural beasts made to be caught and destroyed. They blaspheme about things they are ignorant of, and in their corruption they will perish. So they will perish in their corruption, according to St. Peter. Do you know the tragedy behind this? I said it already. St. Peter is not referring to idolaters or to ignorant Gentiles, but all this refers to Christians. The Christians who surround us today, but they have yet to perceive the meaning, the meaning of the gospel. And they exist like the Gentiles and the idolaters. The perishing of the sinners will be an eternal hell, a hell of existence with an eternal incorruption and inability to die and return to zero, eternal torment. The phrase, they corrupted the earth, and how does the earth become destroyed or corrupted? Maybe Cain was the first who corrupted the earth with the murder of his brother, but his parents were the first who created the presuppositions of this corruption and destruction of the earth with their disobedience. Corruption of the earth, or nature, is the change of the divine order upon the earth. What is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is the opposite, the return of the divine order, the, the, the return of incorruption and immortality. We continue now with verse 19 of the 11th chapter. Then the temple of God was open in heaven, and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple. And there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, an earthquake, and great hail. When the prayer, the thanksgiving, and the doxology of the 24 presbyters came to an end, the ark of the covenant appeared in heaven. And please pay attention to this. This entire vision is in heaven. And when the covenant appeared, lightnings, noises, thunderings, and an earthquake and great hail took place. Here, the 11th chapter ends with this verse. And in this verse, my friends, we have a projection of the Ark of the Covenant in heaven. We could say that this is the, the visual dialogue of the prayer and the doxology of the 24 presbyters. However, the projection of the Ark of the Covenant has a certain story. It is known that the Ark of the Covenant was guarded in the Holy of Holies, in a temple that was built by Solomon. 
The arc is a small rectangular box. Its width is smaller than a meter, made with acacia wood and gold-plated inside and out. And inside this arc, we have the stones of the law, the stones with the Ten Commandments given to Moses on Mount Sinai. The construction of this ark was completed in the desert, in the desert of Sinai. Afterwards, the tabernacle was put together. The tabernacle of the covenant, uh, because the ark was to give the covenant or the witness of the word of God. The tabernacle was a tent made with fabric, and it covered the ark of the covenant. Inside this tent was also the altar of the incense, and outside of the tabernacle was the altar of burnt offerings. All these were transported to Jerusalem later when Jerusalem was conquered and the Temple of Solomon was built and following all this they were placed in the Holy of Holies inside the Temple of Solomon. When the Babylonians overtook Jerusalem in 586 BC, one month later the Temple was destroyed and all its wealth, all the vessels, all the utensils of the temple were looted, copper, silver, gold, all these were transported in Babylon. Later, when the Medo-Persians attacked Babylon, we find the vessels of the temple utilized very sacrilegiously, and this is the last evening of the Babylonian Empire. When King Balthazar, who is holding a banquet full of debauchery, as Daniel describes in his book, and at some point he orders to bring the holy vessels of the Temple of Solomon so he and his concubines would use them to drink wine out of, and he is punished with that cut hand which writes on the wall, you are weighed, measured, and you were found inadequate, and that very night Babylon is destroyed. Balthazar is killed, and the Medo-Persians enter and take over Babylon. When in later years the Persian king will give permission to the Jews to return to Jerusalem to build their temple, which was built by Zerubbabel, he also gave them the vessels of the temple back. However, the ark does not seem to be mentioned anywhere. Furthermore, the rabbis clearly assure us that when the vessels came back and the second temple was built, after the captivity, the Ark of the Co uh, Covenant was not present in the Second Temple. Likewise, Josephus, in his Hebraic archaeology, informs us that when the Romans conquered Jerusalem under Titus, they did this uh, after a certain Hebraic revolt, and they attacked the city, they overtook it, destroyed the temple, and took the vessels. Josephus informs us that the Ark of the Covenant was not included in the vessels taken by the Romans simply because the Ark of the Covenant did not exist in the Second Temple. It was not taken by the Babylonians or the Romans. Now what happened to the Ark of the Covenant? We find the answer in the second book of Maccabees, second chapter, verses 1 to 8. I will not read all the verses so I don't tire you out, but I will simply tell you the content which starts as follows. When the Babylonians conquered the city, Jeremiah the prophet took some of the priests before the destruction of the temple 
He had a whole month from the takeover until the destruction of the temple. So he had a whole month to prepare. Some night, he took the ark, he took the gold altar of the incense, which was not heavy. He took the tabernacle, which was made of fabric, and he went to the Mount Nabab in the land of Moab. He passed the river Jordan, and he went to the same mount that Moses went to have a panoramic view of the promised land, and uh, where he died and was buried. There Jeremiah found a cave which was much like a house, so he placed the holy objects inside, he sealed the entrance with stones, and left. Those who escorted him during the transport of the objects, they went back to place some markers so they can make sure to remember the place. However, when they went back to the Mount Nabab, they could not find the cave under any circumstances. They had lost the spot where they hid the Ark of the Covenant and the golden altar of incense and the tabernacle. So they went to Jeremiah and told him that they went back, but they could not find anything. When Jeremiah learned of it, he rebuked them and declared, the place shall be unknown until God gathers his people together again and shows his mercy. And then the Lord will disclose these things, and the glory of the Lord and the cloud will appear, as they were shown in the case of Moses, and as Solomon asked that the place should be specially consecrated. But now the question is, how do we interpret these words of Jeremiah? Is it that someday they will find the ark? They will find the historical ark someday? The Jewish interpreters, but the ancient Christian commentators also believe that the prophecy would not be fulfilled but in the days of the Messiah. Other interpreters place the realization of the ark at the end of times, in the last days. But my friends, we most likely do not have the historical ark here, this wooden box which contained the stones, simply because since God allowed for the temple to be destroyed, it means that there's no longer a place for the ark, because the ark is the Panagia, the most holy Theotokos, and the stones where the word of God was carved, now, the Word became man. He's God the Word. And God the Word came, and he made his tent among us. So there's no reason to find the ark or to have it be revealed again. But what does it mean? Like all the interpreters, the Christian interpreters say the following. The revelation of the ark is in heaven, as revealed to John. And it serves as a symbol, and according to St. Andrew, it manifests the treasury of blessings prepared for the saints, blessings which are hidden in Christ, in whom the fullness of divinity resided bodily. These are the blessings of the kingdom of God, which is Christ himself, the living stones, God the word the very reason why he came and lived among us. But of historical significance is the fact that while God allowed the sacrilege of the temple of Solomon and Zerubbabel and the temple of Herod the Great, because historically the temple was built three times, for Solomon, 
from Zerubbabel after the Babylonian captivity and from Herod in the times of Christ, which was destroyed by the Romans. So God allowed the sacrilege of the temple in such a degree where Daniel calls it the abomination of desolation to bring ancient gods into the temple, to take in statues and to carry out idolatrous sexual rituals in the temple of God, in the Holy of Holies, but God did not permit the sacrilege of the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark was used, it was hidden, and its history came to an end. Its new history is in Christ Jesus. The Ark now is Christ, our hidden treasure who opens the heaven. So when the temple of God opens and the Ark of the Covenant appears in the temple, this is the prepared kingdom of God, which will have all those who will struggle in their life, those who will fight the good fight any way they can. In closing, I would like to bring this final note to your attention. In interpreting the book of the Revelation, do not only expect to hear apocalyptic and prophetic elements always waiting to see what will happen next. The book of the Revelation is not only a prophetic book, but a book of consolation, but also theological. There are many folds and multiple sides to be found in this book of the Revelation. For this reason, I hope you can see how many elements we bring out, precious elements of spirituality, able to console, to strengthen, to help, to bolster our spiritual life. I'm saying this because we may have some brothers here, full of curiosity, waiting to see what we will say next. When would the next World War III become a reality? When will it start? I told you this before. This is an unhealthy curiosity. The book of the Revelation strengthens and helps a man to stand. It guides him. It takes him by the hand to show him the events inside history. But above all, it grounds him spiritually. Under this context, we analyze the book of the Revelation. And I will also request of you to kindly accept the book of the Revelation as such.